Thank you, TJ. You did amazing. Good job, band. Love you guys. Well, last week was definitely an example of what happens when a sermon gets away from you. So I am so grateful to be back here today, not at the occasion or at the expense of uh, Lauren being sick, but as I was sharing with the students, God works all things for good. So God doesn't make evil happen. God doesn't make people sick. God doesn't make bad things happen. God in the garden gave us a choice whether or not we wanted those things or if we just wanted him, and we chose to know knowledge of good and evil. And now since then, he has planned it out that all things work for his good. Sin, sickness, sorrow, all of the things that cause those kinds of things, tragedies, you know, the illnesses of life, you know, ups and downs. And so God uses it for good. So I'm so glad that I get to complete, by God's grace, this sermon that was started last week. I went back, tidied up the notes a little bit. So let's go to the notes, honoring the church. How many of you guys want to honor the church? Amen. And I can speak for your, as your pastor, that you do honor the church. And I feel deeply honored, and I know our staff does as well, from you guys. Let's go to the scripture that I have listed there, my brother, the first one there. In Matthew chapter 16, 17 through 20, verses 17 through 20, Jesus replied and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, because he had just confessed Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus had asked him, uh, the disciples, who do you say that I am? He gave the right answer. And he said, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We could just stay there. If you give me your attention, I'll just summarize this passage. It's Jesus explaining to them who he is and then what he is going to do. It's his identity and his mission. He is the Messiah. The Messiah is the promised one of Israel, and all the, ho- all the hopes of the Israeli people were upon the Messiah to make things right, to redeem them from their enemies, and that is going to be a lot more in-depth than they're ready for, because the Messiah is going to actually take the sins of not only the Jewish people, but of all people. And so it's very important that we understand the church is built upon the confession of Christ. Peter answers right, and then Jesus, calling out Peter, says, this is who you are, and this is what you're going to do. And then from your confession onward, I am going to build the church. Now, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, just to nullify or get rid of any idea that Peter is somehow a pope, and that somehow he gets to be over all of the other elders. To the pope, I say nope, and so nope to the pope, he doesn't get to have that authority. Uh, I said chapter 1, but rather it is chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, as you come, starting in verse 4, as you come to the living stone. Now in our English version, it capitalizes so that we can understand there's really only one rock on which the church is built. But we are going to be little rocks, smaller stones built upon that rock equally, not one greater than the other. There's only one rock that's greater than the other, and that's Jesus. So Peter now speaking, who supposedly the Catholics now say is the foundation after Jesus. So there's Jesus, a big slab of rock, and then there's another big slab of rock called 
Peter's rock, and that will now be filled by the Pope's successions after Peter. And now Peter is going to dismiss that idea right here in his own letter. It would be one thing if Paul wrote that letter and said, you know what, Peter's really not any different than any of us. Let's just chill and just go on. But no, Peter himself, praise God, the confirmation of the word explains to us the basis, the entire foundation of the Roman Catholic Church is wrong from Jump Street. The moment that they claim to have a succession of the popes, and that succession now guarantees they are the one church. This foundation, once it's destroyed, they can no longer claim that. And so you get rid of the pope, nope to, Christi- uh, to Catholic Catholicism. So if there's no pope, nope to Roman Catholicism. Amen? If you don't have the pope, you don't have Roman Catholicism. If you don't have the doctrine of the papacy, you don't have Roman Catholicism. So here it is, so easily just cut off right at the legs. Peter speaking, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now you show me one place in the Bible where where Peter assumes authority as a foundational stone over all Christians, and I'll be the first one to kiss the Pope's ring. But... If you can show me where Peter says we also are living stones with him and everybody's being built up the same with Christ being the main stone, then I will be a Protestant to the day I die. And where do the scriptures point us to? Right to there. You also, living stones. Where does he ever say I'm a different stone? What does he ever say that I get authority over you? And to make the point even more clear, same letter, same book. Go to chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse uh, verse 1. To the elders among you, elders are a part of living stones being built on Christ. So I'm no different than you, but I can have a different position than you. And we'll get into those scriptures today. Just because we're all the same as living stones doesn't mean we all have the same positions. That's a fact. And just because we have different positions, that doesn't mean we're different in our nature or uh, our stone abilities, you know, in that sense. It's all given by God. And now he tells you exactly who he thinks he is. To the elders among you, I appeal as a what? A head elder over all the other elders in another separate office called the papacy? No, he said, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds. And then we could see this again like the small s shepherd, small s pastor, like in Spanish, pastor tacos, shepherd's tacos. That's a very clear connection between Greek and English there, just like how it does with Greek and Spanish, how the word shepherd and pastor are basically the same exact word. Are you guys listening? And so here you see it. That's why the Spanish uses those words. It's, it's because that's what it means. Just like when you go to, uh, to a natural a childbirthing uh, woman, they call her a doula. 
Where do they get that word from? Diakonos, doula, servant. That's just what it means. So when someone serves as a, uh, as a midwife, it's no different than us serving here in the church. We are servants. So these words don't necessarily carry special meaning. We don't need to spiritualize them. They were common words of that day. And so they were used to describe positions. So elders shepherd God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. So you don't do this out of, uh, out of pressure because you have to. It, you want to do this. This is the joy of your heart as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So even though I'm a shepherd, I'm still a sheep. Does everybody get that? I'm still a sheep even though I'm a shepherd. I'm an elder even though I'm a fellow Christian just like you. And it says, and when the chief shepherd, big S there in English helping us see it, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. So let's just tie together why we should honor the church and what we need to learn in church history, which we talked about last week. We'll review it. And then how we do it today in the present. Let's just talk about why that's important. The church is what Christ is building. It's upon who he is. And he's using people like Peter who confess him to be the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. It's built upon those people as if they were stones and he was the foundation and they become a holy priesthood. And inside of that holy priesthood, inside of that peculiar people, that chosen generation, there's gonna be different positions and different gifts that we're going to have, and we ought to, ought to honor everybody in that house, honor everybody's stone, honor everybody's authority, honor everybody's gifting. Amen? So there is no basis for the Roman Catholic Church, which has tainted so much of Christianity. They might have done some things good, but they've done so many things wrong and given Christianity a bad reputation. Even though the Greek Orthodox have some things, the Eastern Orthodox rather, have some things in common with them, the thing that they agree with us on, the Eastern Orthodox, is that the Pope does not have any authority. The church is universal, and it's run by local elders and deacons, as we've just seen here. The Greek Orthodox agree with us on that, and though they may have some of the same things of prayers to saints and all of that, the Eastern Orthodox have nowhere near the blood on their hands and the heresies on their hands that the Roman Catholic Church has had. And I think that the Roman Catholic Church rightly bears the Protestant title of the Whore of Babylon. If she is not the woman who rides the beast getting drunk off the saint's blood, she is a type of the whore of Babylon. She may not be the whore of Babylon, but she might be a hoe in Babylon. Can I hear an amen for some straight preaching today? You know what I'm talking about. The word hoe is an abbreviation of the word whore. It's not a cuss word. Don't think I've said anything wrong. And so when you hear about a hoe, you hear about someone dirty and inappropriate, okay? And so there may be a capital W whore of Babylon coming, and it may not be the actual Roman Catholic Church, but there's been little H hoes like 
the Roman Catholic Church that have brought disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls this adultery and being a fornicator and perverting the grace of God. So we don't say it to be sassy. I say it to be very truthful in biblical language to describe what the Roman Catholic Church has done. Lifted up her skirt. She, she has given herself away to the nations and to be drunk with power. She is like a Jezebel upon the earth. And though the Catholic people are precious and ought to be loved and treated with grace, the system of the Roman Catholic Church ought to be torn down, rejected, and rebuked. So I hate Catholicism, but I love Roman Catholics. And I pray for their repentance. Now, if you gave me the choice between having the worst of Roman Catholicism and the best of Islam, I would still take the worst of Roman Catholicism over the best of Islam because Islam is a whole nother kind of demon and devil influenced upon millions of minds to do even more hideous, disgusting type things. But if I have my choice, I would want to not get kicked in the head or get punched in the face. So I don't want either poison. I don't want Roman Catholicism or Islam or Hinduism or anything. I want Christianity. I want Christ. I want Christ to be glorified. I want to be in Christ's church. I want to be a part of what he is building. I want to hold on to the faith. And let's just go to Jude chapter 1 so you can see why it's so important to hold on to this faith. And everybody hear me here. Mm, I love the word. If you don't have the faith in any generation, any one of the generations we're going to go through, if the faith is not there, Christ has failed and there is no Christianity at all. So don't let anybody tell you that there's a such thing as Jehovah Witness Christianity because they had to fix the Christianity that got lost throughout the dark ages. If it got lost back then, they sure, sure don't have it now. Because if it wasn't good enough to be kept through the generations, it's not in their hands. I can guarantee you that. Either God kept his word, and through every generation we can find the faith, or it was lost and Christianity is false. So let me say this. This is what I say to everybody, to everybody, to Roman Catholics, to Jehovah Witnesses, to, to even my Baptist brethren, though they are still in the faith, but anyone that wants to claim apostolic authority must be able to do it in the scriptures. And if you cannot do it, you don't have a foundation. Then secondly, you must demonstrate it clearly through the history of the church that what you claim you're doing now that is legitimately, legitimately apostolic can be traced in history through every generation. I believe in that, and I'm going to show you that it can be done. But just notice this real quick. Go to Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. Look at what it says here. It says, Dear friends, although, verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. It was once, how many times was it delivered to us? And, and for, for some people or for all people? Now, if that ain't true, the Bible's not true. It was delivered once and for all. One time it was delivered in one age to these holy men of God who wrote it down. 
And it has been maintained, preserved for all. Now I know we all came to Christianity based on an experience with Christ. We don't know. We, we didn't know what was going on back there. Hardly any of us, and I know most of all of your testimonies here, ever even studied church history up until a point when you had already believed what you were believing was right. But here's something I can put on the line at any time. If what you research and find in the past does not confirm with this, then you have been bamboozled. You got emotionalized, or you found emotionalism. Why can I say that with so much authority? Because I know the truth is the truth is the truth, whether I believe it or you believe it or no one believes it. It's the truth because it's the truth. But you talk to Mormons, they don't know about their history. If you guys um, were around, I don't, I don't think any of you were around in Irving. Maybe you might have been. Were you there when I had the Mormon missionaries come on a Sunday? Do you remember when I got into their history, they were absolutely lost. They had to call up their friends. There was starting with one, then it had two, then they ended up having like four of them all on the stage. And they literally said, we'll have to get back to you. We'll have to get back to you. Jehovah Witnesses won't even talk to you about their past. They'll say, well, that was former light. Now we have greater light. They won't even talk to you about all their failed prophecies. Same thing with the World Mission Society, the woman God. She believes she's, a, uh, she's the bride of Christ, whatever. She's literally married to Jesus. And she, they, they won't talk about their false prophecies. People who make videos like Mike Winger, uh, he has a great channel, Bible Truth, I believe is what it's called. They try to get his video removed because they don't want it to be exposed. All organizations that divert from the Bible have to hide their past. Because their past is a great indicator of how many times they have blown it and missed it. Not even just in their false prophecies, but how off they've been. I mean, in the LDS church, they wouldn't ordain African Americans because they believed that their skin was a part of the curse when they fell from heaven with Satan. They all believed that we were pre-existing spirits in heaven created by God having sex with multiple women in heaven. So you came from the spirit lovemaking of, of, of your heavenly father. That's literally what they believe. He's a polygamist. But when Satan fell, black people fell with him as evil spirits, and then they took on the bodies of African Americans. Well, that's a mess that they had to clean up. And, of course, they don't want to talk about it now. And every now and then you'll meet a slick Mormon apologist that will try to squirm and get around it. But it's so blatantly obvious how they had it wrong. The beautiful thing about Christianity is wherever people are wrong, we can always go not apostolic. Not apostolic. Because we can love the truth and not the uh, love the truth over the person. So if Athanasius taught something that I don't like, I can go, not apostolic. We can easily do that because our apostolic, once and for all faith, is based in the scripture, not primarily a secondary prophet. Like Mormons primarily are based on a second book called the Book of Mormon. They, their, their primary source is a secondary source of the Bible. The primary source for Muslims is the secondary source of the Quran. Uh, Muhammad didn't even live in the time of Jesus, never met any of them, and yet he puts mouth, uh, words in Jesus' mouth like Jesus said these things. That would be like me now writing a book saying George Washington said these things. They're not found anywhere in history in any type of book or literature, but he said an angel told him Jesus said those things. And then he denied what the people who knew Jesus said. Come on now, that's just silly. So the problem with church history when done naively is you fall into one of two ditches, as we talked about before. 
Naive people go, well, the apostolic faith was sometime around the disciples, and then everybody fell away, just like Paul said they would, which is true. There's going to be a falling away, which I believe is coming in this time, in the end times. But, you know, Paul said it would happen, and then the church got lost, and, and the church became Roman Catholic and all these things, and then Joseph Smith came around and restored it. And then Charles Taze Russell came and restored it, Jehovah's Witness. And then L. Ron Hubbard, you know, told us where we came from. We came from aliens. And then... And the black Hebrew Israelite founder told us what we were supposed to be. We were really supposed to be Jews as we serve Christ, you know. And, and until this person came, until dun, 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 this person came and restored it all. The IDMR cult, cult IDMR Institute of Divine Metaphysical Research. Kind of sounds like one you were a part of, you know, somewhat Christianity, somewhat new agey and weird. Same thing. This guy, this guy, this guy restored it. And that's why. Even when we as Pentecostals describe Azusa Street and, and the experience there, we ought not to use the language the cults use because that's falling into the ditch that somehow the once for all entrusted uh, uh, faith was not once for all. It was only once for a few generations and then now it has to be once for all for generations moving forward. So when I talk about how truth has been, you know, Re, uh, rediscovered or these kinds of things, I, I try to use verbiage that doesn't disqualify the previous generation. So I don't fall into the ditch of it got lost. And then what's the other ditch? We've had it the whole time and it's been passed down perfectly from generation to generation. Roman Catholicism, ta-da, the apostolic faith. Here it is. And then you ask them, show me that statue of Mary in the Bible in the apostolic faith. Well, that comes later. Well, then it's not apostolic, friend. Well, it's apostolic because an apostle appointed an apostle who an appointed apostle who appointed a pope who appointed a pope said that it was apostolic. I don't care what you say now about Abraham Lincoln. It doesn't make it right. I don't care if you're the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham Lincoln. If Abraham Lincoln didn't say it, it didn't come from Abraham Lincoln. And it can't be apostolic unless it came from the apostles. Even though we can have little a apostles doing the work of church planning and mission work, we can never have the original apostles who met with Christ and wrote down the Holy Scriptures. That's why Paul said he had to come to me last. I'm the least of, least of these in the last. And, and he wrote most of the New Testament. It's over. It's done. Once for all. So you can't go over here into this ditch and go, we got it all right here, and it's the Eastern Orthodox Church. Ta-ta. Because then you point to them and you go, where's all the bells and smells in the Bible? You know, well, it's in the Old Testament. Okay, I understand. They had bells and smells in the Old Testament. But where in the New Testament did Peter start lighting stuff and doing these things? They go for an hour and a half, these services, you know, all the bells and smells and all the statues. Show me that. Oh, well, that came from John Christendom, like we learned, and that came from there. And I was right about it. John Christendom helped develop this around, I believe, the, the four or 500s, but then it kept changing. I was one of the first to bring it up the way they have church, and then it, it got changed over and over again to around the 700s, and then they said, okay, this is, this is the apostolic way to have church. So if you talk to an Eastern Orthodox person, they're going to be like, you're not having church. You know, you got to have church like the way the church fathers did. And then you ask them, well, let's start with the apostles. Did they have church like you? No, they didn't. I'm having church like the apostles. How did the, how did the church have church? It looked pretty much just like what we're doing now. There was a guy or a woman 
sharing with the other men and women. That was it. They sang a song or two. They gave an offering. That was it. You don't need any of these other things. If you want to have a band, you can, but you don't need to. If you want to have ushers, you can, but you don't need to. How many get where I'm going with this? All you need is some elders, some deacons, some disciples. Let's go. It's so clear there. They met in homes. Some people bring it all the way back to the home and say, if you don't meet in the home, you're not truly being like the apostles. Nice try. Nice try. But it didn't say we only had to meet in homes. It just said that's where they happened to meet. See, it wasn't a command to meet in homes. It was that's where they were meeting. But are you open uh, to choose to go to homes. Absolutely. Home churches, and we ought to be respectful. Uh, most of the time they're weird, okay? But there could be some good home churches, and we ought never to put them down because that's a legitimate form of having church. So let us not here in our sanctuary look down on them because that's how most of Paul's churches were in home churches. But we don't understand a lot of their homes because like when Peter met with Cornelius, the house could hold his whole family. So we're talking like if you ever watched the movie Gladiator where Russell Crowe lived a home that would be almost like a property where you could have a courtyard. Now some of them were poor and didn't have a lot, but a lot of the homes where they were meeting were people of wealth and prestige in the city. And so they had courtyards. They would be sometimes upwards as big as this, half the size of this. They had quite a bit of room to meet in those places. They weren't just how we would think of in a little living room. Not all the time. So just to give you an idea, their homes could even be considered meeting places. And so we look to the scriptures and we don't want to fall into either ditch. The ditch over here, it was lost and God told me to restore it, you know. It's always the funny joke that I I tell with my friends when we talk about cults, you know. It's the guy who goes up to a mountain to pray and says, guess what God told me? I'm God. Like, how do you respond to that, you know? Like Apollo Quibloy from the Philippines. Well, congregation, I've come back from a fast, and guess what Jesus told me? I'm Jesus now. (laughs) Jesus told me I'm now Jesus. Jesus' spirit has now come inside of me. You're not Jesus, so don't try it, but I'm Jesus. If you ever ask these people following false cults, uh, what do they do with the other one, you know? Like, so if you meet a pillow, Apollo Quibble follower and they think he's Jesus, ask them what do they think about the Jesus in Russia and the Jesus over here and the Jesus. Oh, those are all false Jesuses. Those are the false ones. Oh, okay. You're the real one? Okay. Yeah, right. And it's so funny because Jesus keeps dying, never coming back from the grave. And yet our Jesus said that the proof of him being the Son of God is the grave couldn't defeat him. And the Jesus of this cult died, the Puerto Rican Jesus died, and then this Jesus died, and this Jesus died. Oh, man, poor Jesus. But really, it's just like the Bible says, there's many Jesuses. There's many Jesus, but there's only one. And so that's why when, uh, when you preach, you preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to the Scriptures. And the Bible says that, you know, demons flee at that name. And so we don't want to say it was lost and had to be restored. And then we don't want to come over here and be like, it's been perfectly restored by this organization. No, it's a little bit messier than that, but it's a divine mess. And I like to use the word mess. Let's take the word mess as mosaic. Let's not say the word mess. Forgive me for saying that. It's not a mess, though it appears that way, but it is a mosaic. If you've ever seen mosaic art, do a Google search of mosaic art. If you look at it from a certain angle close up, like tiles or when people put together the pictures to make like Michael Jackson's face or something, it looks like a mess, but it's beautiful when you see it from the right perspective. 
the church has never been centralized. Let's, um, yeah, go to images. Go to images up there. And let's just get a good variety of these. Let's go to, yeah, let's go to this one right here. Let's go to the trees. I think that's a great example. Now, you see, if I was just to look at that, as it comes up, you can see if you can say view image or something. Yeah, there you go. That's fine. Now, go back to where we were. I think we had a better one there. Just leave it right there. Leave it right there. If you see this mosaic up here, if you were to look at it just at this angle here, like this section, it looks like a mess. It just looks like a couple stones turned at a certain way, and you don't see what it's doing. You may have been alive during the four, five, six hundreds and said, oh, my goodness, the church looks like it's a mess. They're fighting. There's people going here, doing heresy. There's, other, there's, there's governmental powers taking over the church. I mean, it, it's a mess. But the church was still there. The doctrines were still there. As we reviewed before, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God revealed in three persons, it was there. The doctrine of the salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, that was there. The doctrine of the scriptures, God's preserved word, that was there. And the doctrine of Jesus coming back, heaven and hell, ultimate fate decided upon whether or not you accepted or rejected him, that was there. That was all there. But you might have only seen in the century you lived, right, just a little picture or just a little piece of it. But when you step back, what do you see? You see the beauty of what God is doing. And so here, here is a face. I'll click on this one. You know, we could see like the body of Christ. Uh, you could see God is saving every nation and putting the colors together and the languages together. But if you only look at certain parts, you won't recognize what you're looking at. You might just only see the eye. You might only see the nose. You might only see different, different, different parts. And not only in, in every generation you can only see so much, but you can only see so much in your own local church. Like, what is God doing here? What is God doing in our local body? What's God doing in our Bible study? Sometimes we don't really see it all. And so we want to be able to understand how to zoom out from our local church and see all that God is doing, what God is doing in our city, what God is doing in our generation, and then what God has been doing in all generations. And so that's what the church is going to look like, something beautiful, glorious. You know, when he comes back, all of us from all generations being together with him as that spiritual house, as that temple of the Lord. And going back to our notes now, let's review church history and go, I'm okay with it being a little bit mosaic. It doesn't have to be straight lines for me to accept everything. Please scroll down a little bit. We don't have to accept this lie that if it's not perfectly preserved, it's not true. No, because look at what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 3.14-15, through 15, Paul saying, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions. See the, the scripture, once and for all, this faith delivered to them. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Is the Pope the pillar and the foundation of the truth? No, you and I are in God's house upon his word, the pillar and foundation. So we all build that up. There's no big I, like I'm up here and little you out there. We are all that. 
uh, household, all a part of that pillar and foundation built upon Christ. So let's go now to the, to the church history that I made a little bit clearer this time. Here's six main ages in church history. 300 to 100 AD, the apostolic church age. This includes the disciples and our scriptures, which are the God-breathed instructions for the church, but it also includes their companions who wrote with them, not claiming to write scripture. When Polycarp, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Clement of Rome, they wrote scriptures, I mean, they, they wrote their letters, they quoted the scripture. They knew that they were not the same. Even though most of their letters, if you put them in the Bible, people wouldn't even recognize the difference. This age was so close to the truth, they wrote just like their leaders did. Many of them had been disciples of the disciples. But yet, they're not Scripture. What they wrote is not Scripture. It's to be honored. It's to be respected. It's to help us trace our history. But the foundation came from that apostolic age. So if you cannot find in the lifetime of the apostles anything that we're doing now, it, and it's claimed to be apostolic, it ought to be rejected. Now, can we have pop now? Yes, but I'm not claiming it's apostolic. Can you have a laptop? Yes, I'm not claiming it's apostolic. Can we have a guitar? Yes, but I'm not claiming it's apostolic. Does everybody get what I'm saying? You, can, you have the freedom to meet in a building, to have lights and even a smoke show if you want. You, 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 can, you can go to the point of not sinning in your freedom, but you cannot call it apostolic. So our job as Christians is to remain in the apostolic truth. And so once again, like I showed, there's two ditches that people fall into as they view church history. There's another two ditches that people fall into as they view the apostolic age. Some people view the apostolic age, like if you're looking at a stock graph, because that's one of my side gigs, multiple streams of income in Jesus' name, amen, doing uh, the driving, doing the stock, doing the pastoring. I just love Jesus, and I want to change the world for him with all the resources I can get, amen. And if I get blessed, you're blessed, amen. And I got blessed with the boat, and I can't wait to take you guys all on it for your SUM fun day in May, baby. Your SUM fun day will be on the boat. If you don't like a boat, I'll drop you off at the beach. You'll still have fun. But if you want to get on the boat, we'll go tubing. We'll go water skiing. We're going kneeboarding. We're going to go wakeboarding, wake surfing. Amen? We're going to see how fast some of you guys can hold on, how fast I can go with you guys holding on to that tube. Get you going about 30, 40 miles an hour, get you screaming. For you ladies, we'll go slow at first. But if you like it fast, we'll go fast for you. I'm almost tempted to buy a parasail, put you guys up on the parachute like they do at... Yeah, dude, but that's just too much liability, you know what I'm saying? Because I've seen how people have tried to do it on their own with their own parachute and stuff, and it just didn't work. But it's not as expensive as you think, because I've actually looked it up if I wanted a legit one. For about two Gs, you can buy that setup that you see in that Florida and Miami and places and put you right up there, but there's too much liability. That would be fun, though, wouldn't it? That would be fun. Put you about 100 feet, just, just enough to see everything, man. It would just be fun. They actually, I'm getting distracted now. They actually have tubes you can lift up and fly, but then that's too much liability because they crash them. You can look at flying uh, tubing. Anyways, where was I at? Oh, being blessed. Okay, yeah, and doing the stock thing. Okay, so what? Some people believe that the early church is like a stock that just got released. You know, it just came on the NASDAQ or whatever, and it starts off like $1, and then goes $2, $3, $4. Some people think that's what church history is, and a lot of people that, I don't say a lot, but some of the people you 
you hang around in those circles. That's what they think. We got to be careful with them because they'll make it sound like they're at another level than the Apostle Paul. Like the apostolic age was like first grade, but now we're like in 10th grade, you know? That's not the way to look at it. Here's the better way to look at it. Instead of looking at it like we are getting better, what we need to look at is we're maintaining what they had, and whenever we lose it, we dip down, and we got to go back to it. Why is it important to see it that way? Because the Bible told us it's the once for all faith. In this age, you don't get higher than what Peter, Paul, and the apostles did. That's it. You can do, like Jesus said, greater number of works, but you can't get greater than winning souls, making disciples, praying in Jesus' name to the Father, seeing the signs and wonders done. You can see more in number, but you can't see it greater. That is the highest level anyone can reach, and God forbid if we put them down to try to make our generation look better. That's just a sign of pride and apostasy. Really, it is. And that's why I wrote back a little post about, here's what cults and and all these people have in common, even sub-Christian groups, where they're Christian, but they're kind of subpar of where they're supposed to be. They use this lingo, you know, that, that, that's tempting to believe because it sounds like somewhat spiritual. Cults do the same thing. And see, those who don't work with cults, when they go to that prophetic conference, they don't understand those prophetic people they are talking the same way. You know, like, you know, God gave me a vision of this angel, and this angel told me X, Y, and Z, not even found in the Bible, and now we're supposed to do this and this, and the season of believing what was told in the Scripture is over, now it's the season of this, and it's like, hold on, what are you talking about? You know, like there's some groups that say, we never prophesy anything negative, you know? Well, the prophets did that all the time. Well, we're in a new age, you know, the new covenant, they didn't do that. What prophets are you listening to? The, pro- the prophet Agabus tied up Paul's hands and said, you're going to be arrested. You know what I'm saying? Uh, other prophets rebuked people. And so this idea that now you've, uh, you've increased beyond them, it's, it's a lie. So it's not we're going like this. It's we're maintaining the beautiful once and for all faith. So the one ditch says... Oh, we're going from glory to glory to glory, and and that means we're changing the doctrines and even our beliefs, and now it's okay for homosexuality, medicinal weed. I hear all this stuff coming from a lot of people I used to respect, and they try to make it sound like the scriptures were just written by men, and God writes real scriptures on our heart, and the scriptures on our heart is more true than the scriptures in the Bible. I mean, they come up with all this spiritual stuff to say this, you know, and and, and you're supposed to believe like like you're, you're better than Paul, and that's not true. That's not true. And then at the same time, you go over here, and then the people say, well, I agree with you guys. It's the once and for all faith. And then it looks like our Roman Catholic Church. It looks just like us. No, no, somewhere in the middle again, somewhere right here in the middle, we go, there's a once and for all faith, and we're always trying to make sure in every generation we're preserving it. So now it looks like this at Metro Praise International. Pastors dressing casually, communicating to the people, going house to house, making disciples on the streets, using technology. We think that is the best model to incorporate the church as it moves through this generation. And we can look back on John Wesley and say they rode horses and they did outdoor camp meetings and they started mission programs and YMCAs and things like that, community stuff. And we can go, the church was there and it was built in that and it moved through this way. And, and that way you can, you can always say the things that are not as important are not as important, but the things that are most important are there. 
And so in this general sense, we can say the message has remained the same as the methods have changed. Now, there are some methods we're never to change. We're never to change the method of going house to house, door to door, in public and preaching. A lot of times people like to say that. Well, I preach the gospel, but I don't do it like the apostles did. That's a problem. Now, you can use technology, which the apostles didn't have, but you better still do what the apostles did do right? The apostles did go house to house, door to door. They still have houses. They still have doors, right? Are there still people in marketplaces? Are there still public areas, right? You go there and do what they did. Okay, so for it to be apostolic, boys and girls class, it has to be in the apostolic age. First in the scriptures, confirmed in the apostles' disciples. Now, the next age is the developmental church father's age. These are the disciples of the disciples of the disciples, third and fourth generation. Now, right around here, a lot of our doctrines get clarified. So an informed Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox person will be like, yeah, but we owe so much to them, and so we should take all the other things they believe too. No, 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 no. Just because Athanasius helped us understand the Trinity better doesn't mean we pray to saints if Athanasius did. We chew the meat, spit out the bones. What we say is, thank you, Athanasius. And I don't believe he did pray to the saints, but I'm just using it as an example. We say, thank you, Athanasius, for preserving the once and for all faith, explaining it better, because obviously you can't explain things well when your head's chopped off. Peter's uh, got crucified upside down. Paul got his head chopped off. They didn't have time to like write like 20 books on the subjects that God was giving to them. So yes, as time went on, more disciples described it. But you don't get any greater than the revelation in the scripture. You just get better ways of explaining it. That's why if I meet some Christians and they don't quite understand how to say the Trinity or describe the Trinity as we now do in our creeds, like the Athanasian Creed and other things like that, I don't put them down. I just say, let me help you say it a little bit better. I know what you mean, but there's not three parts of God. You know, It's not there's three modes of God. See, three parts would mean Father, Son, Spirit. or always Father, Son, Spirit, but they're each individual parts, and they come together You know, like... Um, Power Rangers and form God. And then there's another way of saying, well, they're modes. You know, one time he's the father, another time he shave shifts into the son, another time he shave shifts into the spirit, you know, like the one from X-Men. What's the woman's name from X-Men? She can shape shift. Mystique. Mystique, you know. No, God is not like Mystique, shape shifting. He's not doing like Loki the, in, in the Marvel universe. He, he is three simultaneously. But you see, all I'm doing is just saying what he's not, to what he is, to what he's not, to what he is. And I'm using the scripture to help define that. And so it's okay if we've made accidents along the way, but we should recognize the purity of the faith when we see it based on the scripture. And so we don't accept everything they say, but we do honor the things we see clearly in the scripture that was there to be discovered. So when they talk about the Trinity, and we go back to a scripture, and we go, in the name, one name, and name also represents nature, and the name nature of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's three in one name, three in one nature, three in one being, three persons. Okay, you know, we're getting close to understanding what the apostles probably would have said, but now we have more time to explain it. But now if we go, let's go to the prayer of the saints. You can't use the scripture and go, okay, Paul prayed to Moses. Show me where Abraham prayed to Adam. 
hey, Adam, I'm having some troubles down here. I know you knew God personally, so if it, would be, it would be nice if you'd do me a favor right now and, like, talk to him for me because it's been, like, 10 years, and he's promised I'm going to have a baby. Adam, I need your help. Like, why didn't, Adam ever, uh, why didn't Abraham ever pray to Adam? Like, just show me one, you know, experience of that. But, but with the doctrines of the Bible, you can walk them through. And then, of course, there's secondary doctrines. We know all doctrines are important in the sense of they should be honored. But the saving doctrines, the primary doctrines, we can see clearly taught from beginning to end. In the developmental stage, a lot of that was done. Then in the political church age, uh, the Roman emperor comes to Christ he accepts Jesus. Whether, his, uh, true, whether he had a true conversion or not, we can only speculate. Some people argue over that. And then he made Christianity the legal and only religion of Rome and made everything else illegal. And then they started persecuting the pagans, kind of payback for what they had did to them. And that time is known as the political age church because this is the first time we're not being persecuted. We're in charge now. And some things went wrong during that time. And a lot of the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church was formed during this time. An idea of a pope, the idea of praying to saints, uh, you know, even some ideas like purgatory started springing up around here. And that's what became really popular. Now, if we go to the next stage, we see that the conflicting church, because the Eastern Orthodox eventually breaks away towards the end of this period, and there's a lot of schisms going on, and also Islam is rising up around in the middle of this time, around the six, seven, late 600s, 700s, and now there's wars in Christian lands, and it's starting to pop off like this is not good, and then we get into the church in the Dark Age. The Roman Catholic Church really seizes power. Eastern Orthodox kind of loses its power eventually in the Byzantine Empire falling apart, and Europe's starts to develop out of the, the different uh, countries uh, starting their own monarchy and different things as, as, like I said, the Roman Empire and Byzantine Empire are falling apart. And then they want their own church. They want their own authority to side with their king. And around that time, the Church of England separates with the king. And that starts what we would now know as a Protestant Reformation that, that brought to uh, America a lot of pilgrims coming for freedom who came from that branch of the Protestant movement. Also Protestants coming from the other countries too. But we were heavily influenced by Anglicanism and a lot of the Church of England in our early days because we were a colony of England, right? We were a colony, also of France and some of those other places, but primarily of England. That's why our biggest war was fought against them for the independence. And then lastly, you get to the Reformation where all of these movements kind of kind of culminate into a great breaking away from Rome and now different churches starting up. But here's the thing we should always strive to, to do is be consistent with our definition of the church and recognize the church in all the different churches. So even though the Baptist is a different church and the Assemblies of God and the Presbyterian, we should all have an ecumenical faith that we believe it's once and for all entrusted to us. Now, people get, you know, get a little bit upset about this and say, well, why didn't God make one church? You know, and just now we're all just one church under one eldership, one ordination. I believe that's because every time it's been tried, it's gone wrong. And so God has let it be organic. And as I mentioned last week, that even in the time of the disciples, they all weren't doing it the same way. That's why Paul was saying in Corinthians, you guys are arguing too much about Peter's way, Apollos' way, my way. Just follow Christ's way, you know. And so if you're under a certain apostle or an organization, follow their way with conviction and let God sort it out. If you're convicted that this is the way baptism should be done or you're convicted about this is the, the, the truth about 
about this issue, then believe it. But don't excommunicate each other over those things. And I gave you guys that stat that the majority of Christians, let's just take Protestants. There's about 900 million Protestants, and there's about 35 million non-Trinitarian groups. That would include the Mormons and uh, Jehovah Witnesses and all of that. That's worldwide, okay? So let's say you just put it, put it together and said one billion. There's one billion Protestants, and let's say then there's a billion Catholics and then a half a billion Orthodox, okay? So let's say it's your 2.5 billion. There's a little bit more than that, but let's just say that's your numbers, one billion Protestants, and under the Protestants are like the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons like because um, they protest the Catholic Church. That's what we would all agree with, with them. One out of the hundred, or say three out of the hundred at the most, are excommunicative, not church-based religions. Jehovah Witnesses are a small fraction. So let's just say once again, they're 35 million, we're 900 million. Do you guys see how small of a number that is? Just make it an even, like we're 1 billion and they're 50 million. So that means out of every 100 people, only five, only five are being wacky. So 95% of us listen to music, hymns, uh, can go to the same conferences, like I respect Moody. You guys get what I'm saying. And so that's where we can point to the Protestant movement has not failed. Because some people try to say, well, it failed. You know, look at all these split-offs. You don't have one pope. You now have a thousand popes. Every denomination thinks they're their own pope and all that. And that's not true. A pope thinks he's over all the other churches. I don't believe I'm over any church. I'm an elder among fellow elders. Does everybody get that? Okay, so here's how we can honor the church and close out this sermon. Number one. Honor the church as Christ's bride. Now that we've covered the past, let's get into the present. Ephesians 25 through 33, husbands, love your wives. Notice how much the church is mentioned here. Just as Christ loved the what? Church. Every time you see the word church, read it with me. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After, no, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Amen. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Isn't that beautiful? So would Christ let his church become a whore of Babylon? No, his church is spotless and blameless in every generation. And I can show you that easily. I can easily show you through the writings of the people throughout history, that our belief system has always been there. It's always been there. It's easy to point out. As a matter of fact, it's hard to deny it. And so God has protected his church in every age. He's made sure that it's gone through the generations. And even though that church, just like the remnant of Israel, was persecuted or wasn't always the majority, far uh, far from being in the public spotlight, they were there serving Christ. Just like Elijah said, am I the only one? It feels like I'm the only one. And God says, nope, there's what, 6,000 others? Or is it 3,000? Look how many were spared with Elijah. Elijah and 6,000. Just type it in. I think it's Elijah and 6,000 others. Because he thought like, man, I'm just the only one. No, you're not. 
And they might have felt at that time when they were looking at that mosaic, man, we're just the only ones. But they weren't. God was preserving his word. Let's go to the, the next one and just shout it out when you get it, please. Honor the church as Jesus' body. This is where I could spend more time on a whole different series. But let's read 12 through 31, chapter 12. And verses 12 through 31. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many members form one body, so it is with Christ. For we all, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, even though the body is not made up of one part but of many. How many is it? You still can't find it? Let me just find it for you guys real quick. Elijah, I'm going to put now bow, knee to Baal, and then I'm going to put 3,000. How many was it? 7,000. 1 Kings 19, 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. Amen. He felt like he was alone, but he wasn't. There were thousands. Now, that might not seem like a lot. There's a lot of other, there's a lot more going to hell, but 7,000 is God keeping his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would always have his righteous people with them. And that's the same thing in the church history. We might, it might have only been 7,000 during the time of 1,100. I don't know how many there were, but I know they were there, and I know they were serving Christ. Okay, so we're the body of Christ. Now, if the foot should say, I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Don't you love Paul's example here? So clear. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. So we honor the church as Christ's bride and as his body, and in every age, the mosaic is being made of the eyes, the ears, the hands. That's why we believe in the two offices and the five, uh, the five ministerial gifts, along with all the other service gifts and gifts of the Spirit. The gifts are all there. And I have a chart where you can see them all laid out. Gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts of service, gifts of ministry, the two offices. And every age, Christ has made those available. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weak or indispensable or shy... And the parts that, they may seem to be weak, weaker rather, the parts that seem to be weaker or shyer are actually indispensable. We need each and every part. The quiet parts, the loud parts, the bold parts, the teaching parts, the prophetic parts, and the parts that we think are less honorable, like what we use to go to the bathroom, we should treat with special honor. We cover them up, right? And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. You thought I was being dirty. The Bible actually talks that way. We, we cover those parts up that to be modest because they have a special reason, and it's not to be presented to everybody. Verse 24, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. You can see my hand all you want. Are you stumbling? No, this is okay. It's my hand. It's a presentable part of my body. Amen. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So the ones that we can't see, God gives greater honor to. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So think about the body of Christ as you think about your body. 
If you get blessed, your hands getting blessed, your knees getting blessed, your ears getting blessed, your private parts are getting blessed, your, your stomach's getting blessed. And so we shouldn't look at each other and how visible you are, how popular you are. That's, how, that's how, not how we should judge each other. That's not how we should judge churches. We should look at the fruit and are they bearing good fruit and are they doing what God called them to do according to the word, amen? Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it, every one of you. And now he does go through a ranking. I don't know if this is a hard ranking or just kind of like an example of how things can be set up. But notice the gifts are right there with the offices and the places to have authority. So, and he doesn't make them distinguish by gender. So this is why I know that the gifts are still with us, the ministry places are still with us, and they're not restricted by gender. Because he goes, first of all, there's apostles and prophets. That's why we always say the church is built upon elders and deacons and what? Apostles and prophets, or apostles and prophets, elders and deacons that way. Because the elders and deacons are the two main offices, and then these are the two main giftings. And then from there, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues, just through that one in there. Now, is that a hard ranking? I don't think so. I think the first two are, and probably from there maybe the third is, but it's just giving you an idea. There's all of this happening in the church, and we ought to honor God's authority and God's place there and his gifts uh, by the Holy Spirit. We not to, shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because remember, if, you, if you're saying, I don't want the gifts, you're really saying, I don't want the gift giver. Right? If you say, Joe, uh, I don't want your gift, you're basically saying, you don't want me. You know, especially if my gift is attached to who I am, like if it's a gift I'm giving my wife, like the gift of my love, and she doesn't want my love, well, she doesn't want me. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are attached to the person of the Holy Spirit. So if you're saying, well, I, I, I don't want gifts of healing here today in this service. We don't want to be like those guys down the street, those weird ones. No, we, we want to be too, we want to be conservative. We, want to, we don't want to be too weird. No, no, no. If gifts of healing come with the Holy Spirit, I want the Holy Spirit, therefore I want gifts of healing. Amen. And then now he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, because we are Pentecostals and believe that all speak in tongues like they did on Pentecost, and Paul said that they wish they all did in this same uh, book, people say, well, see, we're not all supposed to speak in tongues. But hold on, doesn't it say in Mark that all those who believe in him will speak in tongues? So now we have a problem. It's going to be a contradiction if we don't resolve this. Jesus said, and those that believe shall speak in new tongues, cast out devils. But then now here it says, do all speak in tongues. Why does it say that? We'll look at the very next part. Do all interpret. Remember, he's teaching us order in the service. Every time you come, do you have a tongue with an interpretation? No. Every time do you come, do you see somebody healed? Every time you come, do you do the teaching? No, that's why it's saying we don't always do the same things. But we all have access to the same things. I have access to tongues and interpretation, though I don't always do it. I have access to all of these things. You could be an apostle tomorrow. You could be a teacher the next day. You have access to all of them, but you may not always do it. This is for the benefit of the body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, like at Pentecost, like referred to in Mark, and referred to in this chapter. Uh, what chapter are we in? This is chapter 12. Go all the way up to the top. Because we can go to chapter 14. Yeah, go to chapter 14 in your, in, in your Bibles. And then I'll just show you right here that the gifts of the Spirit are for everybody. It's not just me making it up. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13 is about love. And then go to chapter 14 quickly in 1 Corinthians. 
and then look at what Paul says. He's continuing the same thought. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Everyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Tongues and interpretation are to people, but the prayer language of tongue is always to God. No one understands them. If I don't give the interpretation and you don't understand me, that's an inappropriate uh, tongue given in public. But if I'm simply speaking to God, it's okay if you don't understand me because I'm uttering mysteries by the Spirit. That's why, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, watch, unless someone interprets that the church may be edified. So it's so clear. He wishes everybody to speak in tongues mysteries to God. Just like how we say, everybody pray to God on your own. Everybody worship on your own. Pray pray in tongues on your own. But anytime you now want to give me a message or the congregation a message, you better interpret that tongue. Otherwise, just simply prophesy. Does everybody get it? It doesn't make sense unless it's interpreted that way. If they try to say tongues is always a known language, why does it literally say in verse 2, they do not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They always point to Acts chapter 2 and say, well, everybody understood them then. Well, that's only one out of the four occasions. All the other times, nobody else understands them. And then I always ask them this question. Have you ever spoken in tongues and somebody understand it, but you didn't, and it was a miracle for you, but, but a message for them? And they go, no, we've never done that. And I go, I've done it. I have a written testimony of it being done, and I constantly meet other Pentecostals who have done it. Pastor Phil, the man that we met that's from Elgin, he tells a testimony in his church. I believe it was done in perfect German. The guy never spoke a word in German. So God can flip it into a message in tongues anytime he wants to take your prayer of tongues to do that. Generally, he's going to do it when you know it's coming, so it's going to be a message, then interpretation. And by the way, by the way, can any of the spiritual gifts be done in the flesh? Can you do an act of a a miracle or the power of God in the flesh or prophesy? No. So why would interpretation be simply just telling somebody what it means in a known language if it's a gift of the Spirit? If it's just me speaking Spanish and you understanding me, then you don't have to be spiritual to understand. But the Bible says a gift of the Spirit is interpreting it. That's because it's not in the language of men but of angels. If the gift of the Spirit can be mocked and done by people listening to you, oh, he's just speaking in Spanish, then it's not the interpretation. Do you guys understand that? Now, my tongue can be in a language that they understand, but the interpretation, the interpretation has to be a separate thing. No one would understand them unless God told them what it was. And how do we check? We don't. We just have to take it by faith. That is what it meant. Okay? And we always put it by the scripture, but you get my point. Let's go to the last one here. Number, number three, well, second to last, we honor the church as what Jesus purchased. So we always remember this is what Jesus purchased. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. So God's church has survived throughout all the tribes, all the nations, all the people. It is still here today. He purchased them with his blood. As much as we may have to be corrective in the church as the prophets were, let's make sure we never backhand God's bride or poke his body in a way he doesn't like because he paid for it with his blood. And the last point is where we started. It's what Jesus is building. Jesus is not building anything else in this age aside from his church. That is the visible kingdom of God. He's building it on the rock, which is the confession of Peter's faith of what the truth is. 
And you can be a part of that rock. You can be a part of that truth. You can be those living stones and be a pillar and a foundation for that truth. Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Hallelujah. What a good one. Oh, I always enjoy being here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are building your church in this age. You're building it even locally in this congregation. You're raising up elders and deacons. You're distributing your gifts. You're enabling us to make disciples that make disciples who will reach the nations. We bless this church. We bless all the places where the church is meeting in this city, in our nation, in the nations around the world. We bless your work. We pray for those who are persecuted. They are a part of our body, and they're being shamefully treated right now. We pray for your grace and mercy to be with them in the Middle East, in parts of Africa, in Asia. Oh, God, be with them even some places in South Central America where the drug lords take over these cities and persecute the pastors. Lord, we ask you to even be with us in the Western world and in the times where secularism is taking away our freedoms and rights. Help us to stand true to your word. And Lord, may we always honor your church. May these future leaders guard your church, serve your church with honor, considering it a blessing and holding on to that once and for all faith, what you gave previous generations. May they hold on to it and pass it on to others. In Jesus' name, in your son's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Bless him.